Hey, welcome to the Church on Boulevard Sermons Podcast, an extension of the ministry of Church on Boulevard in Richmond, Virginia. We hope that you'll find your time meaningful and that you'll live life to the fullest as we grow together. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is God's word. As we journey into Jesus' famous uh, Sermon on the Mount, he opens with this list of beatitudes, uh, blessed bees. And uh, the term beatitude simply means you're a state of utmost bliss and joy. It's a way of titling these couplets that are linked together. And Carly just read the first three of them. There's eight or nine, depending on how you count them. There's an extra verse at the end. Some people in make it a separate beatitude, or they just include it with the last one. Um, But it's just a way of titling these repeated phrases. If you've watched The Chosen, which some of you are not partial towards Christian media, and that is fantastic. You do not have to watch The Chosen. But if you have seen it and you're into it, uh, the way they do the Sermon on the Mount is probably my least favorite part of the whole series. I think they do a great job with that series. But the way they do the Sermon on the Mount, they hype it up. There's a stage built for him and all this stuff, but the scripture literally says he sees all the crowds and he peels away. He walks up a hillside and he sits down and there's all these people gathering around him and he's been healing. And the guys that have been living really closely to him for a little while now, just a little while, they aren't quite sure who he is yet. (laughs) They peel off from the crowd and, and they're just sitting there and he starts telling them, what it means to be in the kingdom of God. Jesus is illuminating in the whole Sermon on the Mount. Uh, actually, all of his teaching goes back to the kingdom of heaven. That's what he taught on. That was the gospel for Jesus, is that the kingdom of heaven is available here and now. You can enter into it and you're all invited in. <laughs> and he talks about receiving the kingdom. So it's here, it's pressing in on you. Are you gonna receive it? And Jesus is articulating what life in the kingdom looks like. Modern people don't, I think, do a great job with like kingdom language because we don't necessarily like, we don't live under a monarchy in America or anything like that. But if you think about this as like a government coming into power and an administration and how when a when a president, a new president comes into power and they start filling out their cabinet, they have different strategies, different agendas, different priorities. And everybody that's a citizen of of the US has to get in line to what their leaders uh, teaching them to do, or they can push against it. But either way, it's a truth. It's a fact. It's something that's happened in history that you have to respond to. And that's what the kingdom is. And Jesus says, actually, around you every single moment, you have the kingdoms of this world that you can obey the way that they teach you to live, or you can enter into something with totally different strategy, totally different priorities, totally different way of life, and that's the kingdom of heaven, and it's afforded to everybody. And at this time, only the Jews thought they could get in. So the fact that Jesus is going around, it says in the passage right before this, and he's talking to Gentile communities, people outside the Jewish faith, is very controversial, and he's inviting everybody in. 
So the central teaching of Jesus is the kingdom of the heavens is near, enter it and receive eternal life. But what does that mean? What is life in the kingdom like? And that's what we get when he enters into the Sermon on the Mount. That's what Jesus is beginning to show us. So I wanna share a few preliminary things that are going to put a frame around this. And then I wanna just briefly hit on the first three Beatitudes. I'm very indebted to Dr. Tim Keller (laughs) in this message. Like some messages, I just quote him. Some messages I'm like, I have to just put a blanket statement and say, he has helped me see the Sermon on the Mount, especially the Beatitudes, totally differently. And so this is me handing the baton off um, from a lot of his content. And hopefully it's as illuminating to you. But I want to pray before I jump into this because I want to make sure the Spirit's at work. All right. Holy Spirit, there's a lot going on in our heads and hearts right now. Cut through the clutter. Speak to us directly in the ways that each of us uniquely need to hear it and in the way that we need to hear it as a community. Strengthen us by your words. Amen. All right, so the first thing that I think is really helpful is we need to distinguish between form and content. So I wonder if any of you have experienced this. You've talked to someone else who's a Christian and they talk to you about being born again or having a conversion experience. And the way that they talk about their faith, you're like, hmm, that's interesting. I haven't had one of those. Like, what's that all about? And then you talk to somebody else who you know loves Jesus and is also a believer and also a Christian and claims to be a Christian. And they don't really have this specific conversion experience, but they, they care about the doctrines and the teaching and they have this different way of doing Christianity. And their, their way, they're just as passionate about. Maybe they talk about following Jesus or living out their faith or being a disciple. One person tells you they became a Christian for one reason and the other emphasizes other things and you wonder why you don't have the same experiences. You're like, I can kind of relate to some of what you're saying. I also don't really know what you're talking about. My faith experience is totally different. And if we're not careful, we can get really confused as we're journeying in faith and even despairing because it can be like, why, have I, why has God not spoken to me that way or shown me this thing or done it this way? Why do I always get so bored when I open up my Bible, but this person loves it? And this is because we're getting caught in form and not content. The form of your faith, the trappings, there's so many variety. There's so many different ways to live out your Christian faith in life. That is what Jesus is cutting through with the Sermon on the Mount to get to the the clarity of the content. If we get too caught up in form, we may wonder why our faith experience looks different from others. We may even get utterly confused at the varieties of Christians in the world or wonder who's got it right and who's got it wrong. And while there might be some bad doctrine or bad teaching or different things along the way, I think what's more important as we're coming to the Sermon on the Mount is that we don't get caught up so much in all these different forms, but in the Sermon on the Mount, we pay attention to what Jesus is saying is the content of true faith. So if you're feeling lost or confused or worried about your faith, it may do you a service. It might do you well to ask the question, am I caught up in form? Whether I'm having my quiet time this way or not, whether I'm praying this way or not, or 
am I thinking about the content of my faith? And what do I mean by that? Well, entering into the Beatitudes helps us consider that Jesus might be saying something like this. It doesn't so much matter what you've experienced in your faith up until this point. Everyone who's in the kingdom of God looks like this. Everyone who's in the kingdom of God has these characteristics. Now, a few more preliminaries that I think these are all gonna uh, build on each other. So the next thing is, what do I mean by characteristics of life in the kingdom? When we're looking at the characteristics of someone in the kingdom of heaven, we're not just looking at an amalgamation of a bunch of different blessings that someone can get for a bunch of different behaviors. So for example, if you look at the first blessing, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if you go to verse 10 and look at the last uh, blessing, it'll say, blessed are those who are persecuted for their righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now remember, Matthew uses these bookends a lot. And what he's doing in this text is he's saying everything in the middle from beginning to end between these bookends is what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you don't get blessed because you cry a lot and you're a mourning person. And then this other person over here is very meek. And so they get a different type of blessing. It's saying that if you're in the kingdom of heaven, you're poor in spirit, you mourn, you're meek, you have purity of heart, you hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's more about the characteristics and quality of life in the kingdom of heaven, not behaviors that you do to attain some sort of blessedness from God. Okay, so that's really, really important. And that's why it's important to consider content versus form. Because again, if we're going one step deeper from content versus form, we need to know that when we're looking at the content, the trajectory, it's all couched in the gospel of God's grace for us. And what he's trying to say is, if you live in the kingdom of heaven, you can have the happiest life possible on earth. You can actually have a happy life. Happiness is a byproduct of living in the kingdom. It's not the goal of life. And so much of our modern context says the goal of life is to be happy. But have you ever noticed that when you're trying really hard to be happy, you get kind of bummed out? (laughs) Happiness is just one of those things that happens as a byproduct of something else. When you're caught up in the moment and you're filled with love and peace, you would step back and say, oh, I'm happy right now. (laughs) But not because you were running after happiness, but because the quality of your life was a certain way. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's kind of a litmus test. Do you experience these things? If you don't, you might be on the outside looking in of the kingdom. All right, so now let's talk about what blessing is, what Jesus means by it. I think we would do better to think of blessing as happiness. So happy are those who, because then we think of it more as quality and not something that's bestowed upon us. Because a lot of times when we think about blessing, we think about God giving us something favorable as like a quid pro quo. You cried a lot, you're a mourner. So Ben, I'm going to give you a blessing. You get to inherit the earth. <laughs> like, or you'll be comforted, I think is the response to that one. That's not exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, he's not saying if you're melodramatic and you're always crying, you get a snuggle from God. You do get God to come close to you. But here's part of the reason why I say this is because we don't see Jesus living that way. Jesus doesn't, he mourns, but notice that his mourning is never just so that the Holy Spirit comes along and, and nurtures him. Or he's like, guys, I just need to have, self, I just need to self-care right now. His mourning is 
always because he's entering into the grief and the wounding of the world so that he can bring healing to it. His mourning is always leading towards his healing. And that's what a person in the kingdom is capable of because the power of Jesus is in you. Okay, so these blessings are gonna move us towards community, not away from it into some personal religious, religious experience. Jesus never once says, you need to have a personal belief in me so that I can save you. He talks about you need to receive the kingdom of heaven. And a kingdom is a composite, it's a lot of people. We have to think about this as situated in community. The next preliminary, the last preliminary before we jump into these three Beatitudes is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So um, Tullian Chavidjan is the uh, nephew or grandson of Billy Graham, I think. He, grandson, he had a major falling out because he had multiple affairs years ago, but he wrote a book called Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And I remember when he first was kind of shunned from his mega church in Florida and kind of you know, he had a major failing. I remember thinking, I think he needs his book more now than he did when he wrote it. Because the book is about, if you have Jesus, you have everything you need in life. Nothing gets added to it. He was all about grace. We need to realize when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, and I would encourage you guys to be reading it as we go through the next few weeks leading up to Easter, because we're gonna kind of be living in it for a while. Try to even read it once a week. I feel like the spirit will really do something in us if we just get it inside of us, like let it get into our bones. Like read it, read it, read it. But if you read it and you read it with this kind of like sense of openness to what God might be doing, you might find yourself like choking on it at points. Like yikes, Jesus is setting a very high bar. And in the history of Christian interpretation, a lot of evangelicals have said, yeah, see, that's how high the bar is. Let that crush you with a sense of your sin. Jesus doesn't expect you to do any of these things. So what he's really wants you to do is he wants you to see how far you are away from the mark of the goal of a good Christian. And that will cause you to fall into God's grace. The problem with that interpretation in my mind is that that interpretation totally negates how Jesus actually lived his life. What if Jesus actually does want us to live up to the Sermon on the Mount, but it's couched within the gospel? Here's what I mean by that. Jesus is saying, it is better to live this way. He is not saying, unless you live this way, you are not accepted into the kingdom of heaven. Because he's already been so clear that anybody can get in, they just receive grace from him. So it's not about your behaviors, but I also don't think like the evangelical sort of modern interpretation of it's this whole sermon, Matthew used like, took like a fifth of his gospel or a sixth of his gospel to basically tell us a bunch of things that we need to just negate. The only purpose of it is just to be like, whoa, I guess I'm a sinner. Like, I think it's much deeper than that. And I think we should try to live up to the standards that we see in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. But um, they are not something that, uh, that we use to separate ourselves spiritually from others. They're a way of recognizing how the kingdom is among us. Okay, notice right before it gets set up too, if it's Jesus plus nothing equals everything, if this is all situated in grace, notice that the disciples, remember, Jesus had called the disciples, they're walking together. You have to picture this. Crowds are starting to come in, they're walking together. But the text says something really interesting. It 
says his disciples came to him in verse one. That's kind of odd. Aren't they right next to each other? Haven't they been walking together? They came to him. The disciples are stepping away from the crowd to be with Jesus. Some of us are in the crowd and that's okay, but we will never learn what it's like to live in the kingdom of heaven unless we separate ourselves from the crowd. The crowd are the ones looking at Jesus from a distance saying, that's pretty cool. I like the miracle worker. I like seeing what he's doing. But the disciples are the ones that say, you know what? I need to get closer. I wanna actually sit with him and learn how to live life like him. I wanna become like him. Matthew is using strange terminology here to basically help us see that the disciples are taking a risk. They're stepping out on a limb and saying, I'm identifying with Jesus. They're no longer blurring in with the crowd. They are now going to always be marked by the fact that they were with that teacher. That is their rabbi. That is their identity. You can't have this kingdom any other way than Jesus. It is only through Jesus that you're gonna get it. You can try to live into this and it will crush you if you don't have Jesus. Because what we're gonna see very quickly is the teaching in here is a very high standard. (laughs) It is really high and it will crush you. And unless you live into it and then realize it's gonna crush you and cling to Jesus and his grace, you'll only get crushed. You have to be with Jesus on this one. And that's what's really insane about this and challenging in our modern context. But we need to hear that, that this only comes about in your life by coming straight to Jesus. If Jesus is just another great spiritual teacher among many to you, that is okay. You are welcome at Church on Boulevard. I am not trying to make you feel bad or anything. I'm just saying, don't expect the kingdom of heaven to show up in your life in this way because it can't. If he's just one among many other teachers, then you are looking at him from the vantage point of the crowd. You're standing back and you're seeing him along with others. But if you get really close to him and you sit down with him, he's all you can see. And then you can enter into the kingdom. All right. So now we just talk about the three Beatitudes and we'll call it a day. The first uh, four Beatitudes, I'm part of the the camp of... uh, thinkers that basically says the first four show how you enter the kingdom of heaven. And the last four or five, however you count it, show uh, what can come out of your life, uh, what you're capable of once you're in the kingdom, once you've been transformed. Uh, You enter the kingdom through these first four beatitudes, and then certain qualities and capabilities will emerge from your life as you live in the kingdom. And that's what you see in the last four. Okay, so what are uh, what are the first four? We're only gonna look at the first three today because the, the fourth one I think needs to sit on its own. Uh, the first three are, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted and blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Again, Keller's definitions here are really helpful. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? You recognize your problems are beyond you. You don't have the resources to meet the demands of reality. Two, what does it mean to mourn? It means you name your problems as sin and you mourn them. And number three, what does it mean to be meek? It means that you realize that your problems are you. Okay, all of these three have to do with how we approach our problems. How do you approach problems in your life? 
Do you approach problems by saying it's their fault, they made my life this way, or it's my psychology or my wiring, or do you approach them biblically by saying, oh, the problem is evil and sin and darkness in the world. And I, when I look into my heart deep enough, I see my own capacity to do sin and evil and darkness in the world. And that will break you open to the love that God has for you. Everyone knows that they have problems, but a Christian approaches their problems in a distinct way. Dale Bruner says that you could set up all the Beatitudes and put them under one heading, the blessed poor. If we can learn how to be poor, Christians recognize their deep need for Jesus and their utter incapability to manage their life on their own apart from him. Or here's a communal lens. I love this quote from Miroslav Volf. This is a little bit longer, so I'd invite you to even close your eyes while you listen to this. Miroslav Volf says this, no one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion. Without transposing the enemy from the sphere of the monstrous into the sphere of shared humanity, and herself from the sphere of the proud innocence into the sphere of the common sinfulness. In other words, I know his language is is very academic. In other words, we think we have enemies in our life that are our problem. But until we see that they aren't the monsters that we've made them out to be, until we see we are shared humans with them, we are just as broken as them. And until we stop saying, well, I'm the innocent, I'm the good one here, and they're the bad guys. See, in our modern world, we want to say, the, where is evil? It's outside of us. It's somewhere out there. And that creates tribalism. It creates antagonism. It creates like argumentation. It creates a sense of self-righteousness because you're better than those people. And we try really hard in a modern context to make sure those people aren't a different race than us, but we still have those people. The greatest problem in the world is we all kind of hate a group of people. If we're being honest, we disdain certain groups of people. And what Wolf is saying is until we realize that they aren't the monsters that we've made them out to be, that we are, or if they are, we're just as capable of being monsters like that. We'll never be oriented towards Jesus rightly. We will always think that we're better than certain people. Or, We'll see other people that seem better than us and we'll feel like miserable failures. But the gospel is neither of those things. The gospel is realizing that God's love is greater than all sin and one is free to see yourself in the light of God's justice and rediscover your own sinfulness in light of God's great love for you. That's very different. All right, so poor in spirit, let's talk about it. Uh, For each of these three, I'm gonna give a definition and a brief illustration. Poor in spirit is to admit that your problems are beyond you, that you don't have the resources to cover your debt. So what does it mean to be poor? You can't pay rent if you're poor. You're indebted. You don't have the resources. This is why, friends, we would do well to elevate the poor among us, the actual socioeconomic poor, because they know something about what it's like to not be able to meet ends meet that some of us aren't always in touch with, and they're in touch with it on a day-to-day basis. It doesn't make them better than us. (laughs) It does mean that we never look down. Christians never look down on the poor because they have an understanding on a socioeconomic level, what every Christian needs to know on a spiritual level. So 
The poor in spirit, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, beatitude number one, the first thing you need to realize, you need to admit that you are poor in spirit, that you cannot manage your own life. Everybody starts out their life feeling like life is fairly manageable. Everyone starts their first job and their first career thinking they can climb the ladder and they can do it. And you can be successful for a time by following the rules and working hard. But eventually, eventually, as we get older, you're going to see that you're capable of rage, you're capable of greed, you're capable of being terribly afraid. And all of those things in you can keep you away from your goals. And your life is actually very unmanageable. And you can become disillusioned at that point. It takes time to learn that we aren't in control. We spend a lot of money trying to stay in control. We invest a lot of time with coaches and therapists, and that's great and very, very good. All of them are good things, but eventually they lead down a road that help us realize we cannot actually control our life. Life is actually unmanageable. And that is the first step of entering the kingdom, friends, is admitting that you cannot manage your life on your own. To be poor in spirit then means you go beyond just not being able to manage your actual socioeconomic life to say on a spiritual level, I can't pay my debts. In other words, it's to recognize that your problems go beyond economy. They go beyond your behavior. They go all the way to your soul. At a soul level, there is a debt you cannot pay. So we live in a modern world that says, Ignore the nagging doubts that are in the back of your head that you don't have what it takes. You do have what it takes. You can be whoever you want to be. And Jesus is saying the exact opposite. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven if you think that way. You know how you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven? You know how you're actually going to become a strong person? Because we're going to see all of this leads to incredible mental strength and toughness. You know how you become that type of person? Is when you stop believing in yourself and you stop telling yourself, that you can do it. And you say, I can't do it. And you're saying, Drew, that sounds so depressing. Well, let's keep going. This is, this is just the very beginning. But let me start with, let me close this one out with an illustration. Any addiction service worth their salt starts with this beatitude. What is the first step in AA? You know, AA has arguably been the most successful thing at getting people out of addiction. Do you know what step number one is? to admit you have a problem that's beyond you and that there is a higher power that can help you. Where do you think they got that wisdom? Thousands of years before AA, there was Jesus. And this beatitude is the very beginning of how we can un untether ourselves from all sorts of other addictions in our life, which is the core of our problem. It sounds depressing until you realize it's actually more depressing to act like you don't have a problem because then you're the addict that never gets sober. All right, number two, mourning. Here's what mourning is. Once you know your life is unmanageable, you're gonna start seeing that you are part of the problem, that sin is part of the problem. And unless you name it, unless you acknowledge exactly what it is, you will never grow through it. And so you have to name it. And so you, you look in the mirror and you say what the Bible tells you, which is sin is the problem. Not just unjust social systems. Sin is the problem. You start realizing you can't write off your unmanageable life on anybody else. You can't write it off as sociological, psychological, or someone else's problem. To mourn is to look at yourself in the mirror and think about it. 
If you actually start believing this way, you're going to need to grieve a life that is not turning out the way you thought it was so that you can live in the life you actually have. Because God is with you in the life you actually have. But a lot of us don't want to mourn it, but it's okay to mourn it. This is relief, you guys. This is grace. You can look in the mirror and say, gosh, I can't manage it. I'm so sad about that. And there's nothing wrong with you for being sad about it. Sin is trying to take charge of your life as if you are God, as if you can control it. But looking in the mirror and saying, I'm a sinner is going to cause you to grieve the fact that you've tried to do that without God's help. Now, some modern people will say, but Drew, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. The real problem is bad self-esteem. And what you're saying here sounds like you're telling people to think poorly of themselves. And we need to help people have better self-esteem. They're psychologically tortured growing up. And that's the problem. People neglected them growing up. But I would say, what's at the root of the bad self-esteem though? What was causing the abuse to begin in the first place? In other words, you could, say, you could start anywhere. You could say, it's the unjust social systems. We need to go protest them. That's great. I'm just saying that's not where the actual problem is because the actual problem is in the people that have designed those systems because the actual problem is the sin that's at the human heart. And so, blessed are those who mourn. It's those who take their sins seriously and suddenly are like, gosh, God, I'm so sad about that. A Christian who mourns enters the kingdom because they know their problem is beyond them and that makes them actually sad and they name it and they grieve it. I'm gonna skip the illustration here because I think we get it and I wanna close with the last beatitude. The next is blessed are the meek. What does it mean to be meek? Once you know your problems are beyond you, once you know that the problem is sin, then to be meek is to realize that the problem with sin is in your own heart. There's a story of G.K. Chesterton who, there's a story of a man named G.K. Chesterton who uh, was invited into a circle of authors who were allowed to write a response to a newspaper op-ed that said, uh, would you guys please submit your responses as to what is the main problem with the world? And G.K. Chesterton responded what I think is an illustration of meekness. He said, dear sirs and madam, in response to your question, what is the problem with the world? I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Here's the deal. To be meek is to say, I need help. I need specific personal help. I need provision. I need new management. I will gladly hand my life over to the sufficiency of God because he will take care of me. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven until A, you first realize that you're poor in spirit, that you do not have the resources to meet the demands of your life around you. You then have to name what that problem is and it is sin. It's the brokenness in the world. And then you have to go one step deeper and say, and you are a sinner. And then once you do that, you can actually be meek. And being meek is not the same as being soft. That's what I was saying earlier. It's being utterly in touch with reality. It's reaching out for salvation. Meek is saying, I am not strong enough, but I know the one who is strong enough. And that's who I'm gonna lean into. Meekness is submitting your strength to a greater strength. Meekness is not saying I step back and God does all the work for me. He's, he's the great I am. It's saying you are the great I am. You can have all of me. Now let's do it together, God. 
and I'm not gonna try to power myself through it. And I'm not gonna try to control the variables. My life is unmanageable on my own. But with God, suddenly I have this power that I can take all of my capabilities, all my gifting and place them inside of, and now they're supercharged. And the God of the universe is helping direct my life and I'm living in life with him. A great way to illustrate meekness is a little shepherd boy named David who has the courage to go with a few stones and a slingshot and slay a giant. And you know what he says? He says to the king, the reason I'm confident that I will kill Goliath is because I know a God who is with me. In other words, he brought all of his strength to the table, but was his strength enough to slay Goliath? Heck no. But he knew that with God's strength and God's power working through him, he could do it. And that is what all of us are capable of once we enter the kingdom of heaven. But first you have to approach your problems differently. So let me close with this. This week, any problem you run into, try this approach. Try first saying, I cannot fix this. Literally, even if you think you can, just try for a second to be like, you know what? I actually can't change my coworker's opinion of me. I'm so stressed about what they think of me or I'm so stressed what my father-in-law or mother-in-law thinks of me. I'm so stressed. Like what if I invite, I ask this person out on a date and they ghost me, it's gonna crush me. Stop and just be like, you know what? What if my problem is not whether or not they respond or whatever, it's that, this is so beyond me. I can't control that person. I can't make them, they're outside of my control. It's unmanageable. And then pause and be like, now the gospel speaks to this because I'm a sinner too. How does sin work into this? Well, sin tells me that I'm not good enough to reach out to this person or I'm not good enough to have that conversation that they will shun me that, or or the worst is I actually have done some things wrong to that person. And part of the reason I'm afraid of my father-in-law is because I actually have been kind of a jerk or I have gossiped about him. Well, great, now you can mourn it. Gosh, I have had fault in this too. And then you become meek. You say, God, okay, I feel so heavy about all this, but if I just live in this state of mourning, I, we'll never build bridges here. I'll never be able to step forward. Will you, by your power, intervene and save me and rescue me? And then you will have learned what it means to stack up poverty and spirit, mourning, as well as meekness. And that's gonna prep you for what comes next because what comes next is being hungry and thirsty for the righteousness of God. And we're gonna learn about that next time we talk. Know that on the backside of all of these, there is the kingdom of heaven for the poor in spirit, there's comfort for the mourners and there's the earth, inheriting the earth for those who are meek. All three of those, when Jesus goes to the cross, he gives them up. He gets no comfort from God. He's forsaken. He doesn't have a penny to his name. They are trading all of his clothes and everything. He's stripped naked. He's nailed to a cross. He doesn't inherit the earth. He's kicked outside of the kingdom and hung on a cross outside of society all of that, because that's where the power supply comes when he rises again. And then he says, you know what? The reason you can be poor in spirit and not be terrified that someone's gonna crush you because of it is because I've already died as the poorest in spirit 
and you will never be crushed because you're poor in spirit. The reason you can mourn and face your sin without sheer terror that God's gonna send you to hell is because I have died for that sin and you will never go to hell on account of it. And the reason that you can be meek and reach out for another power is because I rose again and I conquered the grave and you never have to fear death. That's what the cross gives us. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Church on Boulevard Sermons podcast. You can find out more about Church on Boulevard by going to www.churchonblvd.com.